Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 284 with Dr. Leah Weiss. Leah has loads of wisdom when it comes to mindfulness and how it makes a real difference in your work. Having had some interactions with the Dalai Lama and taught it at Stanford, so you'll learn one, how to practice the intentional use of your attention. Two, pro tips for taking productive breaks. And three, handy tools for setting your personal purpose. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep284. And we got a new handy tool for you. If you are in the least bit pondering whether you should remain in your job or think into the future, we got a real nifty tool that's an assessment and you can answer some items and then behold, you get your schnazzy, personalized, customized report that tells which elements of a job most drive happiness for you. You can get that by texting profile to 345-345. And I want to hear what you think. I hope you love it. Now, here is Leah's story. Leah Weiss, PhD, is a researcher, professor, consultant, and author. She teaches courses on compassionate leadership at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and is principal teacher and founding faculty for Stanford's Compassion Cultivation Program, conceived by the Dalai Lama. She also directs Compassion Education and Scholarship at Hope Lab, an Omidyar Group research and development nonprofit focused on resilience. She lives in Palo Alto, California with her husband and three children. Big thanks to Leah for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Leah. Leah, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Leah, I'm excited to talk to you. It, it seems like of all Americans, you have a special connection with the Dalai Lama. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how that relationship evolved? Well, I, I think for me, he's been a inspiration since I first encountered um, his speaking and writing when I was a teenager. And I've had the fortune to um, work closely with his interpreter, Tupin Jimpa, uh, for the last um, seven years or so of my career. And it's been a great opportunity to get to um, work in ways that are supportive of the Dalai Lama's vision for secular ethics in a world where we all bring um, the values and compassion to our lives and our work. Mm -hmm. well, well, do you have any sort of fun facts or anecdotes or exchanges that leave to mind when you reflect on time with him? I had the opportunity to fly cross country with him um, when I was nine months pregnant with my second child. <laughs> and that was um, amazing. And I was also concerned that I was going to go into labor, which luckily I did not. <laughs> um, but when he, he saw that I was pregnant, he um, started telling stories about how his mother had told him that he used to kick a lot when she was pregnant with him, <laughs> which I really enjoyed hearing. And, you know, just any opportunity, even you know, brief moments or being part of a um, large group, it, he's still so inspiring. And I think on point that for, you know, imagine people in the audience who've read or seen something of his, um, he just fosters that connection wherever he goes. I remember the Secret Service on the plane with us 
um, were talking about how their lives were changed by being on this assignment. That's awesome. So, well, can you tell us then a little bit about the story behind your course at Stanford when it comes to compassionate leadership? How did this get born and, and what does a student learn when they're enrolled in this course? So I've been teaching this class for about six years now. It's always waitlisted. Um, it's evolved over the years. Um, I think the quickest snapshot of what I teach um, is really captured in the book. The book was an attempt to um, share the experience with a broader group of people than I have uh, worked with at Stanford and in organizations. Um, but really what it boils down to is learning the skills that fit in with our emotional intelligence quotient, um, that our mindfulness and self-awareness and purpose and ability to forge strong connections, even with people we dislike um, and are irritated by in our workplaces. And it's it's really a science that brings together research from all across positive psychology and combined with the um, long contemplative practice traditions and including my own training. I spent most of my 20s um, doing 100-day and six-month meditation retreats. So I'm really distilling that down into what I learned in those retreats um, as well as the research. Well, I'm so fascinated. What do you do over the course of 100 days of meditating on a retreat? Well, the Tibetan curriculum has you doing a lot, lot of different things and it follows a trajectory. So from the first year, you would do a set of practices, visualizations. Some of the practices would be physical. Some would be more along the lines of what you might think of when you hear the idea of meditating. And then the next 100-day retreat um, does a lot more with the Tibetan yogas, which are... Uh, different than what most of us probably think of when we hear yoga. Uh, it's a different system, not unrelated in goal, but but approached differently. Um, you know, for one, when you're a Tibetan up in the mountains and you're doing yoga, uh, one of your primary concerns is generating heat. Um, <laughs> and so there's a whole way of approaching our bodies and that actually researchers have been fascinated by and have documented changes in our metabolism and our ability to um, increase temperature, body temperature. Um, then, you know, on from there, there's different uh, visual, in-depth visualization worlds, basically, that you learn to create and dismantle um, to learn how we construct our reality um, in day-to-day -day life and uh, that's kind of a sampling, a lot of looking into how perception happens. Um, so it's it's more active than you'd think when, <laughs> and, and more varied than you would think. There's a lot of different types of practices. Okay, well, that's cool. So let's talk about some of these skill development elements. And first, could you share with us, so you've got the course and then your book, How We Work, sort of lays out for a broader audience how to develop these skills. Could you maybe first make a bit of the case of the why, you know, behind these skills in terms of, you know, just in case we were to have a hardcore skeptic, you know, greed is good, mm -hmm. cash is king, results are paramount listener. And we're usually nicer than that. 
caricature. But uh, if we do have such a listener, could you paint the picture for how do these things tie into, you know, performance results and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Well, I love um, getting into it in the practical uh, mentality because I think, you know, if we can't understand where the rubber meets the road, then, you know, what is the point of doing this work? And so I'd say, you know, the starting place I would have is if you're interested in productivity, you'll know that the first place that we are challenged in our productivity is in our ability to pay attention particularly in this day and age where there's information overload, technology designed to grab our attention. And in this chronic time of um, people don't understand, one in three people can tell you what their job is, meaning two in three people can't actually tell you what their work is and why. That's fascinating. So of course they can't (laughs) stay on point and be productive, right? I mean, that's terrifying. That means if you employ you know, six people that four of them don't exactly know what they're doing or why. And you can scale it up from there. Can we zoom zoom in on that just a little bit? That's blowing my mind. I can understand how sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, it's complicated. I don't want to get into what a Python framework is and how I'm coding blah, 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 software, software, code, talk. But you're saying two thirds of folks just cannot muster the sentences for this is what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let alone like getting in the weeds with like, here's yeah. the type of language from coding in and why it was selected. But like, here's why we're creating this program and what our end goal to serve our company, our customers rather is. They can't answer that. Oh, the why is where it's tricky. It's like, well, I file these reports. I could tell you that. So what the role is there for. Okay. What the role is there for. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Well, so that is striking. Go ahead. So even if you know what you're there for, you're going to be challenged in paying attention. So, and which is why people are describing our, our existing t- our time now in the business world as the attention economy, um, because everything comes back down to our ability to prioritize and make good choices for ourselves, for our team, for our organization. And, you know, mindfulness is not like some hippie dippy thing that we're just doing in California. It's a $1.1 billion industry. 22% of companies in 2016 had mindfulness programs. And that number was projected to double in 2017. And when they're still analyzing the data from that period of time. Um, but the reason people are investing it in it isn't because the hippie movement is back on the rise. It's because it directly translates into dollars earned and hours spent in productive ways. Companies like Aetna measure it that, you know, 62 minutes per employee of additional productive time per week, $3,000 per employee a year of increased productive time um, when an employee has been through mindfulness training. Intriguing. So then can we define, you know, what is mindfulness and how do we train it? So my preferred definition of mindfulness is the intentional use of attention. Okay. So we can do that anywhere. There's nothing in that definition that says close your eyes and meditate or do it during your break or lunchtime. It's, we should be doing it right now while you and I are talking and whoever is in the audience is listening so simple. But if you start to pay attention, you notice that you're way more distracted than you ever realized. And quickly, that becomes the impetus for people to 
say, wow, this is a big problem. I'm super distracted. Everyone around me is as well. What can we do about that? And then the good news is you can do a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm intrigued. So the intentional use of attention, and we had uh, Dan Harris on the show some time ago talking about 10% happier and, and meditation and such. And so he used an interesting analogy for meditation that he said it called it, it's like a bicep curl for your brain. And so I'd love to get your take when we talk about the intentional use of attention, because I'm thinking I cannot quite intentionally use my attention, you know, nonstop for nine hours. So how do you think about the dynamic between intentionally using attention versus, hey, chilling out and taking a break? And does taking a break mean let your mind wander to whatever the heck you want to? Or I'd love it if you could frame that up a little bit in terms of this notion of intentional use of attention. Is that like a muscle? Does it have effort that gets tired? How do you frame that up? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think if you want to play with that metaphor, since it's on able of looking at meditation like a way to train your mind as though the rep is returning your attention to what you've chosen, to your anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can increase your strength, meaning, you know, just you can do it for longer, you can do it better. But just like, you know, following on this training metaphor, that doesn't mean you go to the gym and you start doing bicep curls around the clock if you want stronger biceps you need to train properly, which includes uh, different kinds of exercise and rest and learning how the complementary muscle groups work. Um, and that's how I think of, you know, to respond to your question around what about rest? And I couldn't do it for nine hours. No, nobody could focus in an, in a um, honed attention kind of way for nine hours. What I recommend to people is to view Pomodoros or setting an alarm for themselves for 25 minute bursts of monotasking, then having the break. Um, this is recognizing how our attention works so that we can leverage it. And I do think that there's a lot to be done with improving how we take our breaks and doing in in ways that are actually restful as opposed to um, just a distraction or Mm -hmm. like, you know, a kind of false, false break. Okay. Yes. Well, so I'd love to hear then if we're talking about doing reps or training, what are some of your favorite prescriptions in terms of enhancing our ability to have intentional use of our attention? So I think you need to have clarity on what your goal is in any period of time. So if you're approaching your day, um, you need to be aware of what the priority is and also de facto what the priority is not. You need to know what your likely distractions are going to be. You know, this is all consistent with the best uh, thinking on behavior change. You need to know where you're going. You need to know what's likely to uh, make you... Uh, not get there so that you can preempt. So you want to structure your time. If your goal for the day is to get focused work done, you would approach it differently than, you know, if you're at a networking conference and you want your goal for the day is to connect with as many people as possible, you're going to, you need to have your targeted outcome. So if you are moving through a number of different activities, you would want to structure your day to work with how your attention focuses, um, your habits of focus work. So if you're like, I know I've got four hours of focus work to 
get done. I've got some calls I've got to make. Then I've got just a bunch of tasks that don't take a lot of um, brain power, but they will take time. Then create the plan based on how our attention functions so that we do um, the burst of focus energy interspersed by the breaks of the less high maintenance kind of tasks. And that we're aware that we're not calling ourselves multitaskers along the way, that we are unitasking and taking breaks or we are switching intentionally between tasks. Because as we know from the research, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only task switching, which has costs. You can't actually be on a call and emailing both at the same time. You're moving your attention back and forth between them, doing neither of them particularly well. Mm -hmm. Understood. And so that's kind of clever when it comes to the alternation between, you know, intense focus task and then task that does not require intense focus. And so I'm wondering if all of your tasks require intense focus, what's sort of the best practice in terms of taking an optimal break? Yeah. And I mean, I definitely live in that world where it's writing, it's grading, it's a lot of highly focused um uh, work. And so the way that I structure my time is knowing that um, I need to not fall into habits of like thinking that, you know, social media is consumption is a break. That's not a break. Okay. Getting up, moving, um, you know, taking a walk could be a break. Um, getting a drink could be a break. Taking the 20 minutes to do today, I have my grades due tonight. So there's just like a lot of reading and backlog of that. Um, so it's making the decision that instead of having 15 minutes of unproductive time, I'm going to take a real break for 20 minutes and go do a quick workout. And I, what I see in people who are farmers is lecture time with great care. They know when they're having their calls. They know when they're having their emails. They, it's like they're, architects of, of their time in this very proactive sense. And you don't hear the same overwhelm from them that you do um, from so many other who are kind of approaching their calendar like it's happening to them rather than they're making choices about how to structure it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. That's a great distinction. Social media is not a break. I think that is a rallying cry. Can you expand upon that for the skeptic? Yeah, I mean, I think for the skeptic, you just have to, I don't think you need to believe anything, um, skeptics. I think what you should do, this is my humble opinion, is pay attention when you try different things. Like give yourself, if you have, um, if you're not sure if you believe that, then try it, you know, take your breaks tomorrow, have them be breaks on social media. Then the next day say, my breaks are not going to be on social media. They're going to be getting up and taking five minute walks, you know, a bunch of times through the day and see how you feel. You don't need to believe anything, including me or the research. What you need to do is pay enough attention to what happens when you experiment and take that data and trust that data. And that's very much what I encourage my students to do. I'm not a big believer person. I'm just a person who's tried practices and seen that they work. Um, and also some of them don't work for me, but then I figure that out, put them aside and go with something else that does. Um, so I encourage all of you to do the same. All right. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about self-awareness. 
I've seen some research, which I think I do believe, since we're talking about uh, what we believe and don't, with regard to most of us are not as self-aware as we think we are. So could you pack a little bit of what do you mean by self-awareness and how can we get more of it? Self-awareness is such an interesting term. So, you know, one of the ways we talk about self-awareness often is when we hypothesize about what we would do in a given situation, right? We say, well, you know, if I were in that, you know, fill in the blank from a newspaper article we're reading or a, a movie we're seeing or just a friend's situation we're hearing from, our imagination about what we would do, so our take on who we are and how we would behave is notoriously wrong. It is like completely the choices we think we would make are not the choices we actually make when we're in a situation. So that's one big way in which we don't know ourselves. And there's a lot of ways to unpack that. You know, some is um, from the perspective of um, Kahneman's work that he won um, the Nobel Prize for understanding that there's fast and slow thinking and that there's um, there's responses that are rational and then there's the responses that are emergent or intuitive or embodied. There's a lot of different ways you can describe that. Um, so this is one of the places where economic theory breaks down. If you want to say that we are all rational actors, we are not rational actors. We are people who make post hoc descriptions of our choices in rational ways, but those were not the actual drivers. So I think that's another way where mindfulness practice relates because we can actually get much more clear on the emotional kinds of drivers that are influencing our behavior and the behavior of people around us that we are most likely to overlook otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay. So are there any particular practices you know, that you recommend in terms of getting a boost. One that I think is really simple and really powerful is to start getting clear when we are analyzing and interpreting a situation, how much is data that's observable and how much of it is conceptual overlay um, or interpretation that is highly subjective. And, and there's tools that I write about in the book where I talk about how you can go about doing this from like, you know, take a piece of paper and, you know, say there's an event that you're thinking about, a, a meeting you had that went sideways and you're trying to figure out what happened. So on one side of the paper, literally writing out like the things that happened on the other side of the paper, the interpretations you made about all the things that happened. And it sounds so simple, but we bundle those together. And when we do, then we're very quick to say, oh, well, she coughed. Um, and that was an indicator that she didn't like my thinking. It's like, well, maybe it, what we know here is that she coughed. We don't actually know what that meant, but we do these projections and conceptual overlays so quickly. Um, and then we react to what we've constructed. And often it's misinformation, incomplete information, and it leads us down a path of interpreting another person's behavior, reacting to that behavior, and all these ways that are just wonky. Um, so what I recommend is just getting back to the basics. Like, what do we actually know? What is interpretation? If it's interpretation, is there another possible interpretation? Can we get ever more precise and in unbundling this 
mess that we can make when we're projecting um, motives when we don't actually know what they are. Mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you. Well, and can you likewise share some of your favorite tools for hitting the purpose side and the connections with others side? So purpose, one of the ways that I've really fallen in love with thinking about it and training in it comes from a student I had at Stanford Business School, an officer in the army, and he comes from a military family. His father was a general of the engineering corps. And the metaphor that he brought that I'm in love with <laughs> comes from his father, which is something that they grew up with. And what it is, is pretty simple. It's a puzzle and a puzzle box top. But the story behind it, I love, and the why it is so helpful, I think, is really powerful. So the story behind it is they, from the time they were little, they would do puzzles as a family. As they got older, the puzzles would get harder. As they got even older and they're about to leave the home, the dad would take away the box top. So they had to try to figure out how to solve the puzzle without having that that clarity about what they were building. So this becomes the metaphor for leadership. That is our job. There is no box top out there. We as leaders and aspiring leaders need to be awesome at clarifying what we're doing and why and continually making sure that everybody is clear on, on that. And then this is where I think it gets even more useful is if we use that metaphor, then that means we ourselves that we work with are instrumental towards that vision because you can't solve a puzzle with just one piece. It won't work. You have to actually value the role of the other pieces. And, and so I think when leaders take a metaphor like this, it is inherently causing them to take a more strengths-based approach to understanding the people around them, lifting them up, and then building stronger relationships and building their own career in the process. Mm-hmm. Yes. So in practice, if there is no box top, you're kind of continually reflecting and reiterating the vision of what we're up to here. Exactly. Exactly. Every time you make some sort of change, people need help updating it and making sure that they're updating it in a way that's consistent with the rest of their team and the organization. So this becomes an ongoing aspect that of leadership that we need to, to take really seriously, not waiting until like the retreat next year when we talk about a purpose. But this comes full circle to what we were talking about before with the crazy high engagement um, epidemic, the lack of engagement that, that we have, it comes back to this purpose, there's no box top. So without that box top, two thirds of your employees don't know what they're building. Right. And I'm wondering, if you find yourself in a box topless world <laughs> and you're maybe not the leader and you would like to get a clearer vision and purpose connection to what we're up to, what are your tips for the person in those shoes in terms of asking the right questions or maybe even formulating your own purpose? Love how you just frame that. And um, actually those two clauses in your, in your uh, question are exactly what I work with my students on. Um, that your ability to ask questions actually differentiates you as being valuable. I can't tell you how many times CEOs visit my class. We just had Jeff Weiner, CEO of LinkedIn, come in a few weeks ago. And, you know, one of the things the students were talking to him about is what can I do if I'm not like you? I'm not running this company. Um, and, and his, what I heard him say in response to that was, 
you prove yourself valuable by showing the inconsistencies, by asking the questions. That's who any good leader wants to surround themselves with. So it's it's actually a great way, instead of trying to be the know-it-all, be the person who's asking the real question in surfacing what is not known but needs to be known. So that's one piece of it. And then you exactly alluded to how I would refer to cultivating purpose. No matter what the box top is for the organization, you also have to have your own individual purpose. And you need to have clarity about how it's fitting together with your organization so that you can be in a situation, ideally, where it's a calling or at least a career um, for you. And, and it is a meaningful trajectory because what the organization sees you as valuable for providing is also valuable to you. Um, so you need this is continual work that needs to happen. And I think the good news is it's doable work and it's actually really inspiring work. Um, and, you know, this is one of the reasons I think when I'm going and doing offsites with organizations and working with teams, more and more of them are recognizing we need to spend time together, really understanding what makes each other tick so that we can work well together, particularly when things get stressful, which they will. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I think that's a pretty powerful reframe there from Jeff Weiner in terms of we need you to ask those questions. It's helpful and a great leader will want that. And, and I think that maybe there's just a lot of not so great leaders or maybe there's a justified fear that if someone's thinking, ooh, you know, I am kind of curious how this connects, how this helps a customer, how this, you know, ties into our strategic plan or vision or whatever. But I'm concerned that asking that question could, you know, put them on the defensive, like, oh, he's trying to torpedo what I just talked about or make me look dumb, like, oh, I, I'm apparently not sharp enough to connect the dots on my own. Or would you just be annoying because this meeting has already been going too long and we want to wrap it up? So that's intriguing because I think any number of these elements of doubt or resistance can creep in. And it's encouraging to hear that at least one person's take that no, no, asking such a question is highly valuable and does not make you a pain, but makes you look awesome. Well, and you have to be smart about it as your point is exactly getting to, right? Like you don't want to do it at the at the all hands meeting when everybody is like just been told a department shutting down, you know, you have to be sensitive to context, um, you know, and all when and how, um, but creating those opportunities, seeking them out and getting more comfortable and just experimenting with it, I think um, goes a long way. So we can take the risk to ask a question in a setting where we are on the fence about it and see what the response is. And I think you're exactly right. It doesn't mean that, you know, the group is there to serve our needs. We need to make sure the way that we are asking the question is of service to bringing the group along. And I think we cannot, we can all tell when other people are doing that. That's the difference between a good question and someone being really annoying. Oh, yeah. Isn't it true that this thing I know makes me awesome? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like that's what not to do because that's not actually trying to get at your organization or your role purpose or your team's function. <laughs> exactly. That's just going to irritate people. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but find a way to ask the question that will be of service and is an earnest question. And we have really good 
sniff tests for when people are being authentic. So if we really want to understand and we're being aware of our environment, I think that it's a good risk to take and see what happens. You're not going to get fired for asking a question. You might get better at when and how. Um, if those are learnable skills and way better to be learning them than to just throw the whole exercise out the window. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. Well, Leah, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to highlight before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Um, I love your questions you've been asking. You're good at this. You're clearly a pro. Oh, shucks. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, the one thing I haven't really talked about overtly that might be helpful for the skeptics is, you know, understanding, let's talk about a topic like compassion for a second, that like, it might sound, oh, that's so soft, and we're here to compete, and we've got to beat everybody else out, and worrying about this just seems like a waste of time. Look at it from the perspective of organizations are groups of people People have challenges. We suffer. We have families who get sick. We have illness ourselves. We have things that happen in life. So it's inevitable in in our organizations that the challenges of life are going to come in. When people see not just that their own challenges are met with compassion, but the challenges of the people around them are responded to, they increase their loyalty to the organization. They become more engaged. And this is following on the research. This isn't just my opinion. They miss less days of work. They stay with organizations longer. They are more invested while they're at work. So I think there's an important way of understanding that it's an organization's need to respond to the human element and that we can also do that in small ways, even if we're not at the top of the org chart, if we're just, you know, just a person working in an organization, we can still create within our team and department an environment where we understand what's going on, at least to some basic degree in the lives of the people around us, demonstrate that we care, that will improve our relationships and will make it easier when we need to get stuff done. People will be more likely to help us um, if they know that we've demonstrated care for them. So I think it, there's a, an important way of framing this that I would want to share with the listeners to think about and reflect in your organization what you've seen happen in terms of responsiveness to suffering and challenge. And also times when organizations fail on that what does that end up doing to morale and retention and all of those things? Sure. I think that that's powerful because just the innate human experience and need for reciprocity, you know, that's just sort of baked into us as well as, you know, suffering really can be kind of mild. Every one time I was working late and uh, someone asked me if I wanted a milkshake from Potbelly's and that was just, it really did alleviate my suffering. <laughs> You know, and, and I thought that guy was the coolest <laughs> for having done that, you know? So that's awesome. Yeah, right. Just like we would in relationships outside of work. Right. You know, I love that example. It's so human, right? Like you're working late, you're hungry, you're, you know, or just having someone care about you as a person that it would make you feel delighted to have this shake. Like that is a very human moment in the thick of it. That's exactly the, the kind of, and it, it couldn't have been like a company policy. It had to happen mm-hmm. because this person saw you 
and cared about you as a person and wanted to make you smile. Like it was sincere. It was customized. It was appropriate. They didn't like buy you a car. Um, (laughs) Although that could have been cool. I'll take that too. (laughs) You're having trouble getting around, Pete. Here's a car. (laughs) Oh, excellent. Well, this is fun. So now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The quote that I love and come back to again and again is from Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, in which he wrote about his experience in the concentration camps in the Holocaust. And he says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And I love that. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And if he can say that about the concentration camps, the thing I love about that is then I can deal with that annoying coworker. I can remind myself why I'm there, why we're both there, even if they're chewing with their mouth open or they interrupt me when I don't like it. If I can get really clear on that common why, that goes a really long way. So that's one of my favorite inspiring, but also highly practical quotes. Uh-huh. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or a bit of research? I love Ali Crumb's milkshake study. Um, she's now at the Stanford psychology department. And um, one of my favorite studies of hers is looking at what the impact is of our beliefs um, on our physiology. So she started out asking questions about placebo. And so this study, what she does is divides people into two groups. One group gets told this milkshake is healthy, nutritious, low calorie, yada, yada. The other group gets told this is an indulgent, high calorie treat. And depending on the message that they got, their hunger hormones responded in kind. So if they were told it was a light, low calorie shake, they would get hungry again more quickly and their hormones would actually respond accordingly. If they were told it was the very fattening, dense shake, then their bodies would respond in kind. And the thing I love about this study is that it shows us how much our beliefs matter. We know that placebo effects have impact, but how are we really leveraging that in our day-to-day life, in the way we're approaching our work and our relationships so that we can be healthier and happier? Oh, lovely. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I'm going to go with The Lorax. Um, I just reread it with my youngest child who's three. And I have to say, Dr. Seuss, now more than ever, we really need to understand the impact of our organizations on other humans, on the environment. We've got to step it up before it's too late, or we're going to end up in a, um, I think we're already seeing where we could end up. So that book, it's short, it's impactful. Um, I actually wrote a piece on it recently. Uh, saying why I think this is a vital leadership text for our time. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? I think what I want to go with is knitting needles <laughs> because um, I think that it's really important to have practices. And for me, knitting is one of them of getting back in our bodies um, and doing something for those of us who are knowledge workers and live in our head, seeing something physical that we can build with simple um, materials and dedication and a plan. 
for me is endlessly inspiring. So I'm going to say my knitting needles. Oh, fun. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? I love one that I started when my oldest child was about two. So this was five years ago. She loves making decorations like lots of little kids. And I was struggling with transitioning from work to home. I would come home, be preoccupied with what I needed to finish or a call I just had or you name it. I'd come home and I'd be preoccupied with a call I just had or something I needed to get done. And so we would put up decorations on the front door for the holidays and they would constantly be shifting. Um because the holidays would shift and they would grab my attention because they were changing. So it was became my prompt, my cue um, to notice I'm coming home. I want to be present to my kid, to my family um, and transition with care from one set of roles to another and dock my technology and take my shoes off and and enjoy that precious time with my family. So the decorations on the front door for when I'm coming home. Oh, thank you. And can you share, is there a particular nugget that you have been teaching that really seems to connect and resonate with students and they quote back to you time after time? We really do a lot with David Foster Wallace's This Is Water. Yes. Um, in that fundamental idea that he shares in it of that if we don't choose, then we'll fall into our negative default. But if we choose to pay attention to how we're mentally constructing the world around us, particularly the people around us, um, and experimenting with seeing them as fully human, as valuable um, giving them the benefit of the doubt, um, imagining the suffering that they might be going through that I don't know about that's driving this behavior that I'm not a fan of in this moment. And the students talk about that. I'm just grading final papers right now. And it comes up again and again um, as you know, reaffirming this commitment to choose to be more aware and compassionate in their lives. And also with the humility of like, that's going to be a lifelong trajectory, but it's it's one worth being on. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And is there a best place if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you? Where would you point them? My website is the best place you can um, sign up for my, my newsletter. And I share out the most current research and all of that um, kind of material and lots of tools for mindful meetings and um, exercises you can do in the thick of it at work and in your life, in your busy life. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? You can influence a lot more than you think if you take responsibility for how you are thinking about talking about approaching your time and your relationships at work. So own that and uh, use that and benefit from that. Beautiful. Well, Leah, thank you so much for taking this time, sharing the goods. Please keep on doing what you're doing and cultivating the compassion and all you're up to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I really love Leah's point about separating what happened from your interpretation of what happened. You've heard it before, and I think it makes a world of difference for just staying sane and not kind of going nuts when you 
can read so much into things that aren't even there and begin to see things unclearly and do things suboptimally. So great reminder from Leah. Hope you dug it. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep284. The assessment for what drives happiness in a job is available by texting profile to 345-345. And if you have not already, I do recommend pushing subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest, Tara Winston, who's just breaking it down on what it takes to get the promotions. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.